entering the Freedom Hut. Preventing another American civil war? Warren's wealth tax, we actually look at the numbers. Vinman proves the deep state is real. Are Disney movies racist? Northwestern students need a safe space. And Sean Spicer is out. That and more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you for being here. Very much appreciate your time. And we have some things to dive into today for sure. I want to start with this cover of The Atlantic. Now, The Atlantic has some good writing. It's a left-wing magazine, but there are good writers, very talented writers at The Atlantic, and they occasionally put out a worthwhile or provocative enough article that I want to talk about it on the show. In fact, years ago, Christopher Hitchens was a regular Atlantic columnist, so they've had some of the the most talented uh, left-of-center folks out there for quite some time. Hitchens, it's tough to define really where he falls on the political spectrum. But the cover tells you exactly where... They're taking this issue, how to stop a civil war. And the uh, main article in it, which I read this morning, goes into the specifics of whether or not or rather why this country seems to be coming apart, what the causes of that fracture are, and then where this could lead. So effectively, this is the Atlantic wargaming the politics of another civil war that's what they're looking at and this is one of the more elite journals of opinion out there now i would note uh they use some statistics to back this up the most interesting one was that about 35 percent of people according to recent polling uh, would be upset if they had a child marry someone of a different political affiliation which is somewhat stunning when you think about it, much higher than the numbers uh, used to be. And in fact, higher than the polls when it comes to whether somebody would be upset if they had a child marry outside their religion. So that begins to get at the question of whether Americans now are treating politics as perhaps a substitute for religion, politics not as a system for managing and dealing with conflicting ideas and interests, but politics as an existential fill-in, something that replaces the spiritual and uh, celestial relationship that people have with whatever their religious affiliation may be. Um, I won't get into the role of uh, atheism and agnosticism in this current phenomenon right now. That would probably be a show in and of itself. But there's clearly a turn from traditional monotheisms uh, toward Something else, uh, climate change, obviously, I tell you, is a religious belief for people who think they are too smart for religion and they are wrong. But also there's this demographic change that has been happening in the country. So you have a, a need for an existential belonging that seems to be filled by politics right now. And then you have this demographic reality that is shifting. I mean, America's uh, ethnic composition due to immigration, the article goes into some detail to describe, has been transformed more rapidly in the last, 
let's call it 30 or 40 years than at any point in American history. Uh, And you also have an unprecedented surge in continuous immigration and large scale illegal immigration while you have the expansion of the federal government and the expansion of the welfare state. And now we have twenty three trillion dollars of debt piled up atop all of this. These are some combustible factors. Now, the narrative that you get from The Atlantic on this is that because the center right has given way to the far right in the Trump era, that will be the that's essentially where the blame should lie. And this is the this is the liberal version of why we may come apart as a country, why we could be heading to, if not a a full fledged civil war uh, of, of violence against opposing factions within this country, which would be horrific and no human being on Earth and particularly no American should ever uh, wish for or think would be anything other than a travesty. Uh, but perhaps political affiliations becoming so. Uh, deeply ingrained in people's minds and the possibility then of secession movements getting to be broader. And maybe you start to have groups that really do push for a kind of separation, which we think is unthinkable. Of course, that did lead to the civil war in the middle of the 19th century. But we also were a political entity formed by breaking off from another one. So that is that is in our founding. So you have the rise Again, noted in this Atlantic piece of pro-secession uh, pro movements from the federal government in California from the left, people saying, well, California should become its own country, which, by the way, I think that would be fascinating if California no, no longer could call upon the, uh, the federal government and all of a sudden was just governing itself. No, no more Supreme Court to weigh in on anything, just California governing itself. Uh, it, it would, in fact, I think, turn into... Uh, Venezuela relatively quickly. Well, not right away. Remember, one of the problems we always have to deal with with the central planners and their bad ideas is that it can often take a long time to milk the fat cow so much that it no longer has any milk and just shrivels up and dies. It can take a long time for people to realize how bad their governing ideas really are because of so much wealth accumulation. In fact, as somebody who's been doing some research on his own into the French Revolution, that was one of the the Jacobins uh, were able to call upon that. They were able to take control of a government that at the time was the wealthiest government, certainly in the in the Western world. And that covered up some of these stupid ideas that they had that were wealth destroying. They still managed to completely upend their economy and there was deprivation and poverty and starvation. But it it wasn't as bad as it would have been if it were a particularly poor country. If California were to separate off because it is very there's a tremendous accumulation of wealth there the fifth largest economy in the world if it were its own country uh, it wouldn't be overnight and along the way you'll always have the central planners the people who think that they know better just give them power they will dictate what should happen in the economy just give them the authority to take from you what what is fair and to give to others what they think is fair Uh, there's always a way to blame someone else along that pathway which is why just relying on the results is not enough. They'll point to something else. They'll say, well, there's an external factor that's the reason for this. Or, you know, because we had to prop up the rest of America so long with our tax receipts, that's why now California is a, after, after this theoretical secession I'm talking about becoming a third world, uh, third world hellhole, which I think could happen. I mean, when, when you think about 
what you know right now you look at how wealthy america is how prosperous we are and it is seemingly unthinkable that this could tr- change dramatically uh, but look at what i mean i mentioned revolutionary era uh, france um, look at what happened in germany after the first world war look look at what bad government decision making can do to even very advanced developed wealthy societies for the time the wealth can entirely evaporate because of decision-making by a central bank or the powers that be. The wealth can be gone. All of a sudden, your entire financial system collapses. I think we have a very short memory in this country because when we discuss the possibility of financial collapse right now, it sounds like fear-mongering to most people. Oh, come on. Things are so great. Things are so good. And I sit here and tell you that at the micro level, President Trump is doing good. I want to say micro. I mean, the short term, I should say, not micro. The short term level, President Trump is doing good things for the economy. Structurally, though, you know, we, we are heading to the edge of the, of the waterfall, my friends. I mean, when you look at the $23 trillion in debt, the complete unwillingness of either side of the political spectrum to deal with obligations that cannot be paid. The only reason this can continue as it is is because we are the world's reserve currency and we can count on the international financial system, our dominance within the international financial system to continue funding all of these things that we are doing. And remember, we're still running massive uh, deficits year in and year out. So in 2008, we almost melted down the entire global financial system, right? And that was based here in America. That was, it's not just in living memory. I remember it very clearly. That was not long ago. It was a decade ago. And that's not a fringe theory. That's what we were told by the people at the levers of power. If we don't take dramatic action, including a whole lot of politically and financially motivated bailouts for the very powerful, I mean, there was, you know, this is the real structural inequalities within our financial system right now have to do with a lot of government action, government action often taken on behalf of those who have the power to influence things at the very top and at the bottom, pay people off for the welfare state. So, you know, the politicians can stay in power and at the very top, make sure that because of the way that we've got very, very low interest rates and people are pushing more and more money into investment vehicles because they're trying to just keep beyond the rate of inflation, eating away at their dollars. If you have assets, you keep getting richer. So you have the asset holding class and then you have the dependent on government class and then everybody else in between is in bad shape or rather is in increasingly bad shape over time. Look at how expensive healthcare is, how expensive college and universities are for people, um, the, the cost of owning a home in most people say, oh, well, well, the millennials and the Gen Z folks should just move to other parts of the country. Well, what if they can't get a job there? Um, the concentration of jobs in cities and the lack of affordable housing affordable housing in part isn't around because of government regulation mandating that there must be affordable housing. So they never learn the lesson. I mean, we should take the road to serfdom and plop it in front of every Democrat, every liberal, every Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders supporter and say, read this, learn this, and then we can have a conversation about what's really happening in this country. But instead, what we have is the Atlantic telling us that the real problem is essentially the rise of ethno-nationalism as the real basis of the Trump movement. Now, there's a lot of ways that you could look at the data from the 2016 election and say, hold on a second. So 
people that had voted Democrat and now switch and voted Trump, they all of a sudden became ethno-nationalists in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Florida, you know, states that Trump won, states that Trump wasn't supposed to be, well, he wasn't supposed to be able to win much of anything they thought, but states that we were told were almost certain to go for Hillary the Democrat, and that had gone for Barack Obama, the first African-American president. Now, now we're to believe that there was just this surge in, in ethno-nationalism. I think this is a very comfortable smear from the perspective of the left. I think what they like to say now is the real problem is that conservatives no longer make the case that this is a country rooted in ideology that has nothing to do with your skin color, that has nothing to do with your ethnic background or religious background, that the ideology of America, the vision of the founders, the constitution is meant for all human beings. And the core of this, the foundation of this idea is in fact rooted in individual rights and human dignity. They say that we're not making that case anymore, though. They, they claim that what's going on now is there's this shift to the politics of xenophobia. And, and this is what the, the Atlantic, this, uh, Yo, I believe it's Yoni Applebaum is the author's name, that there is this shift away from traditional conservatism to this ethno-nationalism. To that, I just say, look at, look at the issues that Donald Trump has had the greatest resonance on. Look at the areas of policy that the president has managed to build this coalition behind him. One of them is just that the establishment isn't what it pretends to be, which I think is now almost inarguably the case. I mean, people will argue with it, but I think they look foolish that the political media and financial elites aren't, aren't so brilliant and aren't so ethical as they have been claiming for a very long time. And now because of the democratization of information, because any of us can go online and see, well, what did this guy say six months ago? What really happened to this bailout money? What did this who is this union donating to? And what does that politician say? Uh, how smart are these people when questioned, meaning politicians in the political class? How smart are they when, they when they're questioned off script? Do they really seem to know what the heck they're talking about? This was a revolt against the elites, which I think is, is entirely left out of this piece in The Atlantic that's warning about the possibility of us heading to a civil war. This is in the Atlantic. I, I'm not, so no one, you know, if Media Matters is watching right now, I'm not the one who's saying, hey, we might be heading to a civil war. The most elite journal of left-wing opinion, I would argue, in the country is saying, we might be heading towards something really, really ugly here. Now, it is true that there is less politically motivated violence now than there was, say, back in the 1960s, and that is noted in this piece. But I think that's in part because as a culture, as a society, we have uh, a, a lesser tolerance for violence now because crime rates have been going down and down. And quite frankly, it is harder to get away with some violent acts now than it used to be. Law enforcement and the technology that enables it have gotten to the point where, and I, I, this is one of my theories as a total side note, someone needs to look at the role the technology has played in making us all so much safer and really dig. We hear about broken windows theory. We hear about, you know, community-based policing. Those are important, sure. But all of us are walking around with tracking devices, logging everybody we're talking to, everywhere we're going, everything we're doing all the time. And the police can just get it with a, with a simple warrant. Um, I think that's made a big difference for how much violent crime there is in the country. But I, I digress. Uh, but what are the real reasons for this coming apart? What are the real reasons for this break? 
uh, in the country, which is very real, because even though there's not as much violence, there is a concern. There is a, uh, a growing chorus of people that recognize the other in politics as evil and bad. That sentiment is growing very, very rapidly. Why? Well, here's one of the main theses from this piece in The Atlantic, how America ends. This particular piece is called The Coming Civil Wars, the overall magazine article. Here's what uh, Applebaum writes. Democracy depends on the consent of the losers. For most of the 20th century, parties and candidates in the United States have competed in elections with the understanding that electoral defeats are neither permanent nor intolerable. The losers could accept the result, adjust their ideas and coalitions, and move on to fight in the next election. Ideas and policies would be contested, sometimes viciously, but however heated the rhetoric got, defeat was not generally equated with political annihilation. The stakes could feel high, but rarely existential. In recent years, however, beginning before the election of Donald Trump and accelerating, that has changed. Now, there's one bit of lack of self-awareness here that I think is pervasive on the left, that it's the conservatives, it's the right that will not accept election losses. Meanwhile, who didn't accept the 2000 election? Bush v. Gore. The left didn't accept that election because, of course, Al Gore lost. And who adamantly and maniacally insists that the 2016 election was illegitimate? The Democrats, the left. Who talks about remaking the electoral system, getting rid of the electoral college, getting rid of the Supreme Court, getting rid of whatever institution stands in the way for their statist authoritarian power grabs? The left. And yet there is no citation of that anywhere in this piece. But what the left sees as a battle and, and what is being laid out here as a, as a forthcoming battle that is based entirely in demographics, a lot of the rest of us see as a battle over ideology of social, the ideology of socialism. Because that is really where the country is heading. And a, a lot of the identity politics, which are infused in the left's, every policy decision is now about what does this mean for people of this group? What does it mean for people of that group? Even climate change now. Climate change, which don't even get me started on how absurd the whole thing is. You know, I'll be here for hours. But climate change is now consistently talked about in in the terms of what this will do for underprivileged minority communities, communities of color. How does climate change affect those communities? Separate from, is the whole planet going to melt down? Are we all going to die? There's, there's always, even, a, even an existential issue for the human race, as Democrats pose it, and that is no exaggeration, and you know that. Even that issue the Democrats will separate out into what does this mean for this or that protected or aggrieved or oppressed class. And this is how they build coalitions of what are largely oppressed or grievance groups for political purposes. And those groups are treated as somehow deserving different legal rights different consideration politically things like you know this is where you get disparate impact law and affirmative action and that never factors into how the left views the fight over what this country is really about from the rights perspective which is that every individual should be judged under the same laws 
There should not be different laws based on skin color. There should not be different laws based on ethnicity or immigration status. I mean, um, uh, national origin. Immigration status is a different thing. Uh, national origin or religious orientation or sexual orientation. Everybody should be under the same rules, under the same law. And once you chip away at that enough, it starts to feel like the country is really just a spoils system. And this is where I think the real danger lies. Conservatives, as much as the left likes to pretend, their favorite accusation is always of racism. I deal with conservatives all the time, professionally, personally. I'd say a majority of my close friends now are conservative, but certainly not a huge majority. Maybe it's 60, 40 conservative to liberal friends in my life. Uh, Every single conservative that I know would recoil at the notion that it matters how how white the country is matters to them. What matters to them is, is this a great country that adheres to the values of the founding of individual rights, limited government, constitutionalism, and the basic virtues that we've tried to instill as a culture and as a society for centuries now continue, including the right to choose your own destiny. I mean, the most important core freedoms. What do you do with yourself? What do you do with your property? What do you do with your family? It really does feel to the right, to conservatives like me, like freedom is under assault. And it is particularly galling. It is deeply agitating, unsettling, and and just unfair that the response that the left has to our real concerns about the erosion of individual liberty is, well, that's just because you're being a bunch of white nationalists, racists on the right. No, that's really not what's happening. That's really not the case. And if they don't understand the case, if they do what I've seen on all these, so many of these shows, you know, MSNBC and CNN, you, you turn on these things. And what's always the allegation about Trump and his supporters? Just just beneath the surface, they're all racist. Never mind the fact that, you know, you, you've had, you had millions of black and Latino people who came out and, and, and voted for Trump. I mean, th- that was actually the, the reality of the 2016 election, I'm not saying it was a majority. I'm not saying as a percentage it was a lot of people. But in overall numbers, there there were a pretty good chunk of the Latino community voted for Trump and a, and a, and a contingent of the African-American community, not a very large one, also voted for Donald Trump. I certainly have a number of friends from the African-American community who are Trump supporters and Trump voters. Um, but that all of that is cast aside in that it's just the rise of white nationalism, and that's what this piece is is essentially going at. That it is white people's aversion to the changing demographics in America. That, that drives everything. I sit here as a white guy saying, no, that's not true. That's a smear. Yeah, there are idiot, there are idiot you know, racists running around. There are idiot racists who are Democrats, by the way. I mean, this is another thing that never gets talked about. There are idiot racists, and racism exists in every country all over the world, in every society all over the world, and at some level always has. doesn't mean that you excuse it, but it just means that let's keep it in some relative context here of what's really going on in the country. Uh, this is a country that is incredibly uh, pluralistic and and truly diverse, and we get along with each other really well. Our political elites and media elites are always talking about how we're at each other's throats. And they're creating that perception. And unfortunately, I think it is taking a hold more. But I mean, I walk around and, and I'm, I'm here in New York City, a complete Democrat stronghold. 
And what I see every day are people who are trying their best, being decent to each other, obeying the laws, and really just don't care what language anyone's speaking, what color anybody is, what ethnic background anybody comes from. They just see, we just see each other as people doing our things here in America. And hopefully at the end of the day, we realize how lucky we are for this country. And we say thanks for our family and thanks to God. Hopefully that that's where we are as a country that that's, and that has kept us together for a long time. Now I know there have been very violent and, and tragic periods in American history. And there has been a lot of times when we haven't lived up to our ideals. We haven't lived up to Exactly what I've said, which is a a society based on human dignity, individual rights, individual liberty, the universality of that and the constant truth of it, and that the state has no right to infringe upon that. Uh, The state has failed to, obviously, slavery, the most notable period in in our history, but the state has failed in other ways at other times to adhere to its own ideals and its promise. The state, just like people, is imperfect. But when you look at the overall trend, the trajectory in this country right now, what what has been happening for the last 50 years? The federal government has been getting larger and larger and more intrusive and more powerful. The federal government now effectively thinks that it can legislate anything that it wants. The judiciary has allowed this, has decided that, well, if Congress wants to do this thing, the Constitution is really no bulwark against that. Conscience rights, religious freedom. The right to bear arms, the right to private property. These are all increasingly under assault by a rapacious federal government that is increasingly going in the direction of the misery and despair inducing statism that has destroyed countries for as long as as it has been anywhere. That will that will destroy prosperity, that will destroy freedom. People who think they know better and can make all of your choices for you are wrong. But they exist in this country and they've existed in many other countries. And the destruction that they can create is endless. They think they're doing a good thing, which is in itself feels a bit dangerous, right? What was it? Ronald Reagan saying that the scariest words in the English language are I'm here from the government and I'm, I'm here to help or I'm from the government. I'm here to help. The right really is concerned. Conservatives, the GOP, the Republican Party, the concern He's overwhelmingly about the destruction of individual rights and the aggressiveness of the leftist status now to take your. I mean, look at the things we're talking about now going into the 2020 election. Things that 10 years ago, every liberal, you know, would have said this is that's that's never going to happen. That's beyond the pale. Look at the issues of national of national significance universal health care they're going to take money from you and tell you what doctor you can see and what procedures you can have right uh, a wealth tax they're going to take overall pieces of your enti- of all your assets year in and year out and then they're also going to tax you when you die by the way and try to pass on money to your heirs so they can fund different government programs wealth tax would have been a non- non-starter 10 years ago open borders and not just open borders but open borders where anyone who shows up in america is going to be getting taxpayer-funded health care. That's, that, that's now the, the Democratic Party's primary position on this. I mean, this is what they say in debates in front of the whole country. This isn't some, you know, backroom Soros conspiracy I'm talking about. This is legitimate. This is happening right now. Okay. Um, telling abortion providers, or rather telling uh, medical providers that they cannot have a, a conscience exception to abortion. 
It's not enough to live in a country where some people can choose to have an abortion and some people can choose not to. No, that's not acceptable to, to the left. They want to make people. They want to force people who went to medical school whose, whose original oath is do no harm. They want to force them to harm unborn human beings. Sully their hands with that macabre work. This is the country we are living in now. A country where live and let live is no longer the rallying cry of any so-called liberals. Liberals want to tell you what you can do with your business. They want to tell you what you can do with your home. Through climate change, they want to tell you what light bulbs you can have. They want to tell you what car you can drive. In fact, whether you can have a car at all, how much of your money you get to keep. Where do your kids go to school? What do your kids get to learn? You have no say in that, by the way. If they have to sit there during drag queen story hour, so be it. The education board has decided that that's good for opening young minds. And oh, by the way, if the state wants to allow for a prepubescent child to start gender transition therapy against the wishes of a parent, perhaps that will also be allowed. And now we have to ask how many genders there are. They can't even answer. They just know that they're coming up with new genders all the time. And if you don't accept that, you must be some kind of bigot. What language am I allowed to use? How am I allowed to speak about these issues? The First Amendment's under assault. We have a media in this country that would actively suppress one of the most important pieces of information out there, which is the identity of the whistleblower. They have no interest in finding it out. In fact, they're coming up with policies to make sure they can't find it out because there is a presidency at risk and one that does not reflect the values that they now espouse, which, are, which is essentially the eradication of the values that we thought this country had been built on for a very long time. As in, people get elected to office, they're given power by the people, and then they have the right to use those powers in, in uh, service to the very voters who put them there. No, instead, there's this fourth branch of government. There's a deep state. There are people who, oh, that's right, they know better. They know better than you do. And so they should have the power to override the power that you thought you gave to somebody for the promises that they made during an election campaign. We thought we were living in a democracy. We're living in something else closer to an oligarchy now. But if the liberals have their way, it'll be more like an oclocracy ruled by the mob. No constitutional protections for the political minority. No constitutional protections at all, really, because the words on the page don't mean what they're supposed to say. Just ask Beto O'Rourke, who wants to come and take your guns. Beto O'Rourke, who decided that his campaign would just be speaking from the liberal id. Speak from that part of the liberal mind that they won't share publicly, but they all kind of have deep down. Didn't go well for him politically, but it's a, it's a taste of what's coming down the line. We know that that's what liberals would like to do. We know they would want to confiscate your firearms. We also know that they want to pass not just hate speech laws, but laws banning what they say is untruth. This is why they want YouTube and Facebook and these other vast social media empires to just bend a little bit to their side because that's all that they need. We have elections that are determined by less than one percentage point of the overall vote. We have elections that are actually determined for whole states based on hundreds of votes. How much help do you think they have to get from social media companies before the Democrats all of a sudden all of a sudden rack up enough wins? And oh, yes, by the way, their plan does involve creating a one party state. 
they do want to get away from the balance of two parties giving alternate views of America and letting the American people choose. They want a permanent Democrat majority. And if that means bringing in people from the rest of the world to achieve that, Democrats are okay with that. They've said so explicitly. Now they pretend that they don't because they don't want the American people to figure out what's really going on here. Hold on a second. How many naturalized citizens are voting in these elections? How much assimilation is really occurring in the rather short period of time in which we've had tens of millions of people uh, coming into America? And what makes us believe that when we can't even agree, for those of us who work in politics all day long, we can't even agree what the most basic words of the Constitution says, we're going to bring people from all the rest of the world in here in enormous numbers and then somehow find a way to see the Constitution or, or, or feel like we are equally bound by the Constitution, by the rules of the road for this polity, for this political union. No, I mean, these are the, the currents that I see that are troubling for how much longer this country is going to be able to keep it all together. I see a status socialist assault on what is supposed to be an experiment in freedom and basic human rights and dignity enshrined in the Constitution. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Not life and whatever Elizabeth Warren decides to give me other than that. Not life and Bernie Sanders, you know, the, the leftovers once a rapacious federal government has gone through all of our stuff. You remember why the founders decided that enough was enough? Sure, they had some brilliant ideas and they wanted to create this experiment, this republic. But also... The King of England was taking a lot of their stuff. People get upset with this because remember, stuff is bought with money. Money is bought with time. Time is a part of your life and taking time from your life under the threat of violence, which is what taxation is, by the way, uh, that can unnerve people. That can upset people when it gets to be too much. Do we think that we're getting close to that point? A lot of promises being made to people, very little that seems to be holding us together these days. Do I think we're heading for a civil war? No. Do I think we're heading for something very ugly? Uh, yes, I do. Well, anyway, team, that's my take on this Atlantic piece. And uh, I know it's not a lot of sunshine and rainbows, but we'll see how things go uh, in 2020. It's it's going to be it's going to be a rough ride. It will be interesting, though, and I'm very pleased and honored that I'll have all of you with me as we face uh, these issues together. And with that, I suppose we should spend. Some of our time today, because tomorrow's open impeachment day. Woo! Maybe we'll get into some of that. So the deep state is real, by the way. That's one thing that we're going to have to talk a bit more about today. Uh, I've known the deep state is real for a long time. Uh, I don't think that it's an organization where people walk around with cards or decoder rings, but there are people in the federal government, plenty of them, enough of them, and at very senior levels, which really matters more than the sheer number, I think, overall, but who believe that their judgment, um, their decision-making is more important than the judgment and decision-making of the president of the United States and that they should. And we've now seen that apparently Rex Tillerson and, uh, and John Kelly fall into that category, which might be a bit of a surprise to some people, at least according to Nikki Haley. Tillerson denies this, by the way. So uh, either Haley is lying or Tillerson is lying. Somebody's lying. It's not possible for neither side here to be uh, or for both sides rather to be telling the truth 
Um, I, I don't really know where I come down on that. I don't know enough about uh, Tillerson to, you know, people seem to say that he's a straight shooter. There's also a fair number of people who think that he was kind of a pompous jerk, from what I understand, at the State Department, and not from liberals in the State Department either. But I, I can't give you a, a real assessment on that one quite yet. Or I don't know. I don't have a gut feeling on it. Oh, but I mentioned before that uh, there was a replacement religion for people now who have turned away from traditional religion in a sense of, of the divine and the connection between man and God. Uh, there's the connection now between man, uh, so much mansplaining going on here, between human beings and the earth, uh, right? Ga- wasn't Gaia like Mother Earth when people used to talk about that stuff? Um I think, and Pangea was when the whole world was all one continent, right? That was Pangea, I think, back in the day. And Gaia is the notion of a Mother Earth. I don't. I remember this stuff from like fifth grade geography class. Um, but uh, Senator Hirono wants to just say out loud what I've been saying for a long time, and liberals freak out at me when I say this. Play twenty one. For a lot of us, protesting, marching, that's not something that we normally do. But you know what? These are times that call for us to do those things that we believe in and to march and not just to march because that's important to show solidarity. But then to do those things such as voter registration, get people to out to vote so that we can have people here who truly are committed to human rights, environmental rights, climate change, believe in climate change as though it's a religion, it's not a science, uh, and all of the things that remains to be done, and, and there is a lot. What was that? Believe in climate change as though it's a religion. I mean, it's not, it's science. <laughs> that seemed like a strange, a strange term there. It's science, huh? Oh, isn't that, isn't that interesting? You know, the history of politicians telling people to uh, believe in something or else because science is very bad, stretching back for many centuries. So I would just note that science is either true or not. We don't need politicians to ram it down our throats because they say so. Uh, But Maisie Hirono, as, as I've said before, and I don't mean to be unkind, I just mean to be accurate. I think she's the dumbest person in Congress. Um, and that's just my assessment. But uh, climate change is a religious belief. And if you doubt that, sit down with somebody right now. Here's an example that I could give you. Uh, There's this movie out right now, Game Changers, which I haven't been able to talk about yet. Game Changers is about, it's on Netflix. You, You can check it out. It's taking the position, and they start with some scientific exploration that says that the Roman gladiators were... Plant, uh, plant-based diet people. They were essentially vegans, mostly vegans. Or they were, they were li- eating a plant-based diet. And then they show different athletes who are world-class in their sport and whatever that may, whatever it may be, including the world's... Uh, ba- I can't remember the guy. Ba- David Babunian, I think is his name. Uh, or Bar- Barbunian. Um, uh, he... He is uh, a plant-based guy, eating eating vegan. Um, the point here being that they show these super athletes and they say, we would all be much healthier and they go through all this science. And it's a pretty radical notion, right? Because most of us think, you know, you, wanna, you want to get bigger and stronger, faster. You eat protein that comes from animals, eggs, meat, fish, etc. This documentary is saying, no, 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 you got it all wrong. 
You got it all wrong. And they've got all these different people that are showing up to make the case scientifically and anecdotally through different highly successful athletes. And I'm not angry at the documentary, right? I don't sit here and say, I love steak. I love eggs. These people are zealots. They're crazy. Because I don't know. Some of it seems pretty feasible to me. Some of it, you know, it's interesting. I want to know what the truth is. But I'm, I'm not. I mean, the fact that they're telling me that I should stop eating my bacon and eggs every day. Um, I don't know if that's ever going to happen, even if it turns out that they are medically speaking, you know, scientifically correct. But that's a choice, you know. But I don't get I don't get angry at them. This is an interesting debate, an interesting discussion. Some of you might be like, Buck, I'd get angry. But, I, you know, I, I want to know what's real. And I'm open to the possibility that they're right or there's some truth to this. And, and I want to study it more. And, you know, perhaps some of what they suggest is accurate for certain people. Maybe your genetic makeup. Some people do better with a vegan or plant-based diet. Point being that that's a scientific inquiry. Right? That, that's a back and forth you have over what is true. When you tell somebody that the world's not going to end in 12 years, they act like crazy people if they believe in climate change. How, how could you say that? There's all the scientific consensus. Then we say, well, are you are you making dramatic changes to your life because you want to save the planet? Well, the answer is always no. I mean, they never make dramatic. They rarely make any changes at all. And you say, well, that seems a bit a bit hypocritical, doesn't it? I mean, if you're not going to do anything, if you don't care about humanity, why should you use the force of government to make other people care about humanity? Oh, how dare you? Well, they get upset because it has been internalized as a religious belief, a belief that exists to give people meaning and to make people feel virtuous and feel like they are better than others, actually. And that is where climate change gets most of its adherence. It has nothing to do with anyone understanding the science. And all you have to do is start to point to different scientists who will talk about water vapor and cloud cover. And, you know, there's all these other there are all these other theories that real scientists uh, pose about what the reality of our heating planet is and people scream at you and they freak out and they go crazy they're not trying to convince you though just stop stop browbeating me right stop just shouting me down explain to me why explain to me why they they get angry right if someone sat down with me and they said you know should you should you or should you not get the flu vaccine which every year you get and you know that's I, I hear from very smart people on both sides of that. And I like to sit down and talk to them. Should you get a flu vaccine? I mean, by the way, it's, you know, well, it can be a life or death issue, actually. But generally speaking, there's people that say, you know, you're rolling the dice. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes there are side effects. Sometimes there aren't. But that's how I mean, science is often complicated. And decision making based on science involves judgment. And judgment obviously has some degree of subjectivity to it. But the people that are the climate change devotees, they, they don't take any of that into account they are they are fascistic in the way they want to approach this problem for those you know the the, the fascist comes from ancient rome it's a bundle of sticks bringing everything together to make it stronger that's the origin of the word fascist and the actual symbol of the fascist was i believe an axe with sticks around it tied with twine right to make it a stronger unit but it's collectivism the origin of fascism is actually collectivism, and collectivism is very much what you need if you're going to take on the global climate challenge. Um, and people also like to feel like they're a part of a community in that sense. They're, they're part of a team, the climate change team. But 
that's just more of my why this is religion. Um, and then there was a moment, you know, Tom Steyer is one of these, uh, one of the billionaires. There are a few billionaires right now who, it is true, spend a tremendous amount of money to influence political conversation in ways that most people aren't really all that aware of. I'm not saying they're hiding it necessarily, although I think some of that happens, especially on environmental stuff, by the way. There are all these pass-throughs and grassroots organizations that are actually funded by mega wealthy donors, but they put it into a group that then disperses it to other groups. And so it's hard for people to know what's really a popular movement or what's just being funded by rich people. Uh, but Tom Steyer, Bloomberg and, and Soros are spending a lot of money to influence a conversation about climate change. And Steyer had this, uh, this town hall where a student got up and, and just, I just, I gotta, I gotta share the, the student's question. It's, it's one you should, uh, should hear. Play clip five, please. In Iowa, higher education is in crisis. The Iowa Board of Regents hikes tuition year after year, shifting the burden of funding public universities onto students' backs. This model is being repeated at almost every public university system across the country. And it ain't right. How does your vision for free college ensure that states can't take educational rights away from students, especially formerly incarcerated and undocumented students? So, Karen, I just I mean, that's that's your Democratic Party right there. A lot of theatricality, a lot of feeling. Not a lot of sensibility, not a lot of sense. What what especially undocumented students okay the word is illegal the, the term is illegal alien they can they can change the term if they want they should go through congress to do that though because we do have federal laws and federal laws refer to people in the country illegally as illegal aliens so i'm not going to start referring to somebody who is a a burglar as an un, uninvited requisition expert i'm going to refer to them as a burglar because that is Burglary is a crime that is described in, in legal books, right? So I, I just don't think that we should change words because people want the word to be changed without actually going through the process of doing it legally. That, that's one part of this. As you know, I, I hate this. This term undocumented is it's a propaganda term. That's all. It, it's a propaganda term, plain and simple. Uh, it comes right out of the Orwell playbook uh, or what Orwell described as a warning to all of us, you know, wrong think and all these. You have so many of these terms that come from the Orwellian lexicon that it feels like now more than ever are useful for our discussions. Um, but especially for formerly incarcerated, undocumented students. I mean, this is a perfect crystallization of a liberal mentality in, in today's America where the positions you hold aren't, you haven't really thought through it. It's not about the positions. It's not about the reality of like who pays for stuff. How does this work in policy? It's how does this sound to the other liberals around me? Are they going to, are they going to clap for me? Are they going to say that I'm speaking truth to power and being so brave by parroting what everybody else around me has been saying all the time? And I mean, this is liberals perversion of speaking truth to power has been a fascinating cultural dynamic for a long time. They really think it's brave to stand up in a room full of people who totally agree with them and say the thing that's going to get the biggest round of applause. That's brave. I don't think that's brave. I don't think that's brave at all. I think it's the opposite, in fact. Um, but this is the Democratic Party. And this is the Democratic Party that we are increasingly finding ourselves separated from uh, by not just a, a policy fracture, but a chasm.
it has gotten quite wide. Um, who, what are educational rights, by the way? Did I have an educational right to have somebody else pay for me to go to one of the best business schools in the world to get an MBA? Because I don't. I was told take out big loans. Thank God I was told that because that's why I work in media instead. Because I said I don't want to have loans for the next thirty years or twenty years or whatever it would be. I don't want that. Didn't want to do it. Made a choice. What? Why didn't my education educational rights extend to Tom Steyer paying for me? You know, it would have cost the school is going to go to cost a. Let me see, 60, 150 grand, two years. That's what it would have cost with living expenses and everything else. And then when, by the time you pay it back, you've essentially paid almost double what you took out in loans uh, for the privilege of going to a school for two years, for the privilege of going to then uh, use that to get a job where you're locked in a cubicle and you know wasting away your life staring at a screen. Um, yeah. I'm just wondering where the educational rights stop and start. I'd like someone to have some explanation of that for me, but oh, don't even get me. Oh, we haven't. I'm sorry. I'm trying to avoid, you know, the impeachment. Impeachment stuff. Everyone's squawking at each other about it. I don't know why that came to mind, but um, we also talked about <laughs> squawking and uh, I want to get into the Medicare for all discussion, but let me, let me do it. Let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about impeachment first. All right, let's talk about where this is going because I know it's in the news and media is obsessed with it. They're going to be running live coverage of it tomorrow. It would be an incredible coincidence mm -hmm. if from various sources within the administration, they just all simultaneously accidentally fell upon the same idea that they could somehow persuade Ukraine to investigate the Bidens. It's, it's such a Trumpian sort of uh, uh, approach that it's almost it's, it's actually quite impossible to imagine that. And, you know, in, in fact, if they want to dispute that, simply allow the president's chief of staff to come and tell the truth. Mm -hmm. I mean, they want to bring in Hunter Biden, but they don't want to bring in a person who is central to the question that is being investigated. So I, I think it's pretty duplicitous, uh, the approach that the Republicans are taking. They want to divert attention. They don't want to talk about the president's behavior. Uh, I said the other day, I'm surprised they haven't asked for Barack Obama's birth certificate. Mm -hmm. They are pursuing every conspiracy theory. See, a psychologist would call this projection. That's Representative uh, Democrat, Representative Dan Kildee, who is talking about how Republicans, they're the ones who don't want to have real witnesses come forward. They want to suppress information here. Go back and read the transcript of what happened when they tried to ask Vinman who is one of the Democrat heroes in this whole situation and is really proof of a deep state. But go back and see how Schiff shut down every time. Who else did you talk to about the phone call? Who else did you talk to about this possible complaint? Congress not allowed to know that. Shouldn't Congress know that? Why is that question unacceptable? Very aggressive lawyer, by the way, in the room with Vindman, uh, you know, pushing back against anyone trying to get answers to these questions. Um, but the claim that there's a diversion of attention here from the president's behavior, we know what the president's behavior is. We, we know what was done. We know what was said. They, they keep coming back to this because I think they, I think the Democrats belief is through sheer repetition. They will, they will intellectually, they will psychologically bludgeon us into saying, okay, okay, yeah, this is impeachable, I guess. I mean, you say it's impeachable. Every day, a thousand times a day, you know, you say that it's, oh, and by the way, I got this from a, a friend over at the 
uh, over at Newsbusters. They did a study. The networks have been going with wall-to-wall impeachment news. 96% of impeachment stories, according to Newsbusters here, are uh, negative against the president of the United States. 96%. That's that's pretty much what the media... I mean, the the media is over 90% anti-Trump. So 96% anti-Trump coverage is really not all that surprising, but it just goes to show you what the real what the real game is here, what the real plan has been all along. They're not trying to get to the truth. We already we already know what happened on this phone call. But I will say this. I, I, I've i been consistent all along. I think a lot of Republicans are getting caught up in, in, you know, when little kids play soccer and they all chase the ball. It's like a little, it's like bees around the, a mobile hive, right? They're all just chasing the ball. Um, I, I've been consistent on this all along. And, and I'll make my case to you, which is that I don't think the president did anything wrong. All right, team. So Nikki Haley is making the rounds right now with her book, um, With All Due Respect. I think it's funny because anybody who says with all due respect is about to be disrespectful. So um, maybe that is the intention. I think there's a few ways. And like, that's a clever title, right? If that's the idea that, uh, you know, is it with all due respect, Nikki? Is it? Um, but she's she's out there and uh, she's trying to make the case that, she didn't agree with some of the Trump administration, senior Trump administration officials who viewed the whole thing as, uh, well, thought there was a necessity to undermine or to divert, subvert, push aside Trump decision making to the to the benefit of the country. Um, but turns out that she was not a part of that or she says she told them that she wouldn't be a part of that. She's out there uh, pushing her book, and she goes on the Today Show where she goes to speak to Savannah Guthrie. Savannah Guthrie used to sit across from Matt Lauer, right? Isn't that wasn't wasn't Matt Lauer with Savannah Guthrie on that show for a long time? Uh, producer, uh, producer Mark, yeah. So, hmm, isn't that interesting? NBC, we're supposed to continue to take NBC seriously as a journalistic enterprise, and and I can I can even handle the like because like morning shows do this, including morning shows that I like, where it's like, hey, like let's make the greatest like fava bean salad. Then it's like, let's talk to the Secretary of Defense. You know, okay, I mean, morning shows for whatever reason kind of get away with that. I think an evening newscast would have a little more trouble, like, but you know, as somebody who's made scrambled eggs on TV, I can't say that I hate it. You know, I can't say that. In the morning, you don't need a little bit of uplift sometimes, as well as politics. Uh, but here's here's what I what I wanted to throw in the mix here. When you go into the oh wait, I was going to get into the Today Show interview, but first, <sighs> NBC News, there's no accountability, right? It's a legacy institution that has a tremendous it has tremendous built in corporate advantage and and reach and name recognition. Uh, NBC News is a disgrace. Um, has disgraced itself and won't, by the way, consent to outside investigation of what really happened with Matt Lauer. Let me me give you the short version of why that is, because very powerful people knew about what Matt Lauer's deal was, his situation, if you will, behind closed doors at NBC. And they're like, this guy, you know, we like Matt. And that show makes a lot of money. Of course, they'll justify this internally to other people that try to speak out by saying he makes us a lot of money, but just... You know, this is a, a a phenomenon of the of the boomer generation where if you're just friendly with the people in power who make the decisions about what kind of paycheck uh, what kind of paycheck you'll get in media, 
people start to think that you're irreplaceable when they're all replaceable. Dan Rather was replaceable. They're all replaceable. Katie Couric was replaceable. You know, we're always hearing about, oh, their audience. No, it's the platform that actually was so powerful. It was the built-in platform and the institutional advantage that these people had, being in the right place at the right time. Uh, but um, now we get to the Today Show uh, with uh, Savannah Guthrie, who was clearly, I mean, the way she answered the que- asked the questions, rather, I could tell. I mean, this was, this was set up, rehearsed. You know, these people, they have questions that the producers will help them do beforehand. I mean, I never, like, write out questions. I just do interviews. I just talk to people. I'm not a write out the questions person. I always was amazed at CNN when I would sit there when I was paid by CNN, which feels like a long time ago. I'd sit there and the anchors would have questions pop up in their teleprompter. They couldn't come up with their own questions. I had to, you know, yes, I will read whatever the producers write in the prompter. Like, really? Uh, but I guess some people just don't have the Buckster skills. I don't know what to tell you. You know, the Buckster just me and producer Mark making all the magic happen in here. Um, but she went into, uh, Nikki Haley went into uh, the Today Show to talk about her book. And she should have known that, I mean, Guthrie's a lib, obviously. Otherwise, she wouldn't have the job she does. Guthrie's a lib. And there's a narrative that has to be hammered home. And the narrative is that Trump is horrible. And I got to tell you, Nikki Haley... Um, well, it was rocky today in this interview. It was not good, and I want to explain why. But producer Mark, please give us a little, a little snippet, if you will, of how this exchange went. The president has said this was a perfect call. Do you think this was a perfect call? If in his mind he thinks it was a perfect what call. What do you think? You know, I think it's never a good practice for us to ask a foreign country to investigate an American. It's just not a good practice. Having said that, there's no insistence on that call. There are no demands on that call. The aid did go on hold. It eventually was released. You know, you can have those hypotheticals. It was released. That's a fact. The aid was held up. That is not a hypothetical, right? Was the aid released? It was. Okay. You you know, one of the things when we talk about the call and you said, you know, I think I won't put words in your mouth. I think you said it's really not advisable to have someone asking a president asking for a political favor like that, asking for an investigation into an American citizen. You know, I, I went back, actually looked at your resignation letter and you said through it all, we were always placing America first. How is asking a foreign country to investigate your political rival putting America first? Well, I think what interest is that in? Is it in America's interest or is it in the president's personal interest? I mean, Ukraine has always been an issue with corruption. That was the case that we always knew that there was corruption that was involved. Okay, in but Ukraine. the corruption mentioned by the president here has to do with Joe Biden and the DNC server. Those and are the two very specific examples. An American should want to know the answer of did Biden pressure the prosecutor to, you know, to do what he did. And I think there's a real question there. You can question the president, but you also have to question what Biden did. Oh, I mean, she started to get around her at the end there, but she's letting she is letting uh, Guthrie get away with all kinds of stuff here. And the framing of the question, the way she asked the question. Here's the response. When, when people do this, you know, I'm going to try to help because I know a lot of people seem. Does Joe Biden have immunity from federal investigation because he's running for president because we know donald trump didn't have immunity from investigation when he was running for president so is there a special joe biden and his son hunter biden 
cannot be investigated clause somewhere in the Constitution? Have I where, where did I miss that? On, on what basis would Joe and Hunter Biden be legally treated differently than any of the rest of us? You say, OK, well, yeah, I guess that they are subject to investigation, whether it's by the United States federal government or by a foreign government that they have perhaps engaged in criminal or corrupt practices in. And if, for example, there was information that was found through an investigation that Hunter Biden pushed his dad on certain policy issues as he was getting cash. Keep in mind, folks, federal prosecutors went after Governor Bob McDonald, who at one point was on the shortlist for vice president of the United States uh, for, for being Mitt Romney's vice president, I should say. Governor Bob McDonald was federally prosecuted and I believe facing 11 years in prison for never taking an official act on behalf of a wealthy donor. And they wanted to prosecute his wife as well for accepting gifts and hanging out with somebody. That, that was the standard that the libs would use against a prominent Republican in a very important state, Virginia, as we know, for uh, electoral and, and national political purposes. So, OK, let's go back to Hunter Biden for a second here. If Hunter Biden's getting 50, does anyone ever find out what, what were the other board members making? Oh, he was also getting paid before he was even on the board. That's come out recently. They're just like throwing money to this guy, throwing money to this guy. Um is it, is it possible to investigate this, to find out if, I mean, that, that's the smoke. Now they're trying to find the fire. That is your, hey, reasonable suspicion that maybe something was going on here. Yeah, you would, you would think that you might, be able, you might be able to get there. You'd think that maybe you know, there'd be a problem. But media has no interest in finding out those answers, do they? What law does the president violate by asking a foreign counterpart to get to the bottom of something? Look, I'm going to say it. If President Trump had said, I need you to detain or I need you to arrest, you know, Biden or any other American citizen without that's that's an abuse of power. That's an abuse. No question. That would be an abuse of power. That's a big problem. The president's saying where there is reasonable suspicion of wrongdoing, which is what keeps getting left out of this discussion. Okay, it was not an accident that Hunter Biden was getting fifty thousand dollars and it was more than that some months. It was not an accident. That his dad was the vice president. Uh, But there's reasonable suspicion and there's no special immunity for Biden's just because the Democrats are desperately linking their hopes of regaining political power to that family. So the answer is. Yeah. President's allowed to do this. And then what I add on to this as well is they, they were they were there were Democrat operatives using the apparatus of the federal government to investigate a presidential candidate on based on lies, not on reasonable suspicion, based on lies. And no one has been really held accountable for that, certainly not in a criminal sense. No one has apologized for this. And there was definitely not any sense of, well, uh, you know, we. We probably shouldn't be investigating our political opponents. What is scarier to you? An investigation of an American politician by a foreign government about corruption or the FBI using FISA warrants to try to jam you up when you're running for president in this country? Which one seems more significant? They didn't really think that Ukraine is going to like try to lock Joe Biden up or, or Hunter Biden. 
I mean, if we're really looking at what's a more egregious abuse of power for partisan ends, the entire Russia collusion investigation as it pertained to Trump was an abuse of power by the Hillary DNC using the dossier and Democrat operatives in our own government to weaponize the federal government against a presidential campaign. And those same people now are trying to destroy Trump's reelection chances by saying that he is not allowed to ask a foreign counterpart in the conduct of foreign policy to get answers about something for which there is reasonable suspicion. People need to stop backing down on this. They play rough. Trump was playing rough, too. This is the world we live in. Did he break the law? No. If people don't like it, we do have a check. There is, there is a way that people can voice their displeasure, that people can push back on the president's efforts to find out what happened in, in Ukraine. And does anyone ever care about the fact that the Politico pieces came out where there were there were efforts by the Ukrainian government with Democrat operatives to get information about Paul Manafort. By the way, that's that's attacking a political candidate. That's Trump's campaign manager. Do we just forget that that reporting that was from Politico? Did, did they pretend that didn't happen? How is that not foreign interference in an election? These people are nuts. But the election itself is there for people to voice their displeasure with what President Trump did, as well as everything else going on in the country. And this is also where you have to look at context. How important, really, is this issue against everything else that's going on in America right now? If you, so so the, the, the Democrats, the real standard here, the standard for impeachment, if we're going to have some real talk, is, is this act bad enough, egregious enough, that even if everything else a president is doing, you approve of and you like, you think it's good for the country and is helping people. You should say, forget all that stuff. This is just he's gone too far. That's really the standard for impeachment. Has the president gone too far? Has he gone too far with an investigation that never happened and aid that was delivered? It's like we're living in some alternate universe, but that's what the Democrats are constructing here. But I, I, I have to say. You know, Nikki Haley, I know she likes to be seen as very reasonable and cordial to the press, whatever. Savannah Guthrie was just going for it, just getting after her, trying to just rip her, rip her to shreds in this interview. It was very clear. It was a hostile interview. And the whole thing was a setup. It reminds me of, you know, stuff that I used to see back in the day at CNN. And she needs to stop trying to concede ground to the other side to seem reasonable because they're not being reasonable. Conceding ground doesn't get you anywhere. There's no they, they don't respond to good faith with good faith. They respond to good faith with, well, since you've given us that, let's get more. And on this issue of Trump's phone call, you know, what is the describing it as perfect? What does that even mean? I would ask that as well. Was it perfectly legal? Yes. Was the president perfectly within his rights to do it? Yes. Was it a perfectly wise thing to say when you know you have deep state operatives working the government? I mean, no. But who cares? What does perfect even mean, folks? What is the meaning of is, is? 
Sometimes you got to use the tactics to the left and throw it back in their face. What's your response to those Republicans who say that Hunter should speak to the country? There is zero rationale for that to happen. Nobody has suggested anything was done that was inappropriate. This is all a diversion. This is classic Trump. Classic Trump. Focus on the problem. We have a president who has, is the most, one of the most corrupt people to serve in that office. Look, I redo, you know, they, what, what Biden do? I, re, I released 21 years of my tax returns in detail. Mr. President, you worry about corruption? Release some of yours. Well, Joe Biden's taxes involve getting money from taxpayers and then giving speeches about his time getting money from taxpayers. Uh, and I, I love how he's talking about Trump diversion and then goes into a diversion. They're talking about Hunter Biden. No one's talking about taxes, Joe. But also this claim that nobody, this is what he said, quote, nobody has suggested anything was done that was inappropriate. I've suggested it. Uh, a, lot, a lot of people have suggested it. Uh, why is your son getting $50,000 a month, folks, from Ukraine? From a Ukrainian natural gas company when your dad is the most important policy person for that country in the world. That looks bad. That is worthy of an investigation. It just is. And, you know, if the Ukrainians come back and say, sorry, there's, you know, there's nothing there. Uh, we looked at it. OK, well, you know, then we've done. But also, what about the journos that used to show up and have all kinds of questions about this stuff all over the place? Right. Corruption is such a, a big issue for journalists. They're really going to pretend that this isn't gross. Another response that I would have had Nikki Haley say is, you know, ask, ask Savannah Guthrie. Is it OK for the vice president's son when the vice president's running foreign policy in a country to just be collecting $50,000 checks from companies that could live or die by the vice president's whim? I'm just wondering, is that is that OK? You're, you're OK with that. Like I said, got to fight fire with fire. Got to put the left back on the spot, my friends. The Daily Northwestern apologizes uh, to student protesters for the crime of reporting. <laughs> this is awesome. This is one of my favorite lib snowflake stories in a long time. This one is fantastic. So here, here's what ended up happening. Uh, the Daily Northwest. Now, Northwestern University is one of the more elite uh, journalism, has one of the more elite journalism programs in the country. Some would say perhaps the best, which is kind of funny because journalism as a field of study isn't really a field of study. It's like, I don't know, you know, you learn to read, speak, write, think. You don't need a journalism degree for that. You just need to do those things, learn the basics and do those things. And every, everyone that I know who's successful in the field of, of media will tell you that uh, journalism is a journalism degree is, I mean, if you want it, God bless, but it, it's really not necessary. It doesn't really do anything. But editors at uh, Northwestern University's campus newspaper put out an apology because they covered a speaking event where Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, was giving a speech. Now, let, let's just all, former attorney general, of course, my man, my man, Jeff Sessions. Uh, let's just take a moment to recall here that a recently serving attorney general going to speak at a university at a minimum should be an interesting opportunity, even for people who really dislike the speaker, who really dislike the attorney general. I mean, I could I could tell you that when Al Sharpton was running for um 
well, I guess it was right before he was running for, for I forget when he was running for president, but Al Sharpton came to speak at Amherst when I was a student there. And I went and I listened. And there, I don't think there was a Q&A, but, but I went and I listened because I wanted to hear what this guy had to say because he's a very, much to, I think, the, uh, the Democrats' shame, he's a very powerful figure in the Democratic Party, was particularly then. And if you want to run for president, the Democratic side, you kind of have to go get the blessing of the Reverend Al. So I wanted to go hear what this guy had to say. Wasn't particularly worthwhile, but I wasn't protesting outside because I thought I was in college to learn some stuff. But a lot of kids think they're in college to be coddled, to be told that whatever they think and believe, as long as it's what the, the left thinks and believes, is the only idea, the only way to approach anything. And somebody that would have the uh, the gall to challenge that is a big problem. So here's what ended up happening at this Jeff Sessions thing. Uh, the editors were sorry, this is from the New York Times, that photographs of some protesters had been shared by reporters on social media. It also said that reporters' efforts to contact students for interviews using Northwestern's directory had been an invasion of privacy. Quote, ultimately, the Daily failed to consider our impact in our reporting surrounding Jeff Sessions. We know we hurt students that night, especially those who identify with marginalized groups. The paper's editor-in-chief signed this. Uh, this is amazing. Um, the column got in a lot of uh, got a lot of criticism, obviously, because this is a newspaper on a campus apologizing for taking photos of a public space and a public event that had people in the photos who attend the school because Jeff Sessions speaking is just so like hurtful and scary. Like now I'm in a photo and he's speaking. I'm, this is what it is. This is what it is. Uh, this is stunning. Um, I, you know, I, I can't imagine how anybody could think that this is normal. This is a, a good idea. I'm trying to find the actual letter, by the way. Uh, oh, yeah. The apology. Here we go. Here we go. I'm going to read you the apology. Addressing the Daily's coverage of Sessions protests. Last week. The Daily was not the paper that Northwestern students deserve. On November 5th, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions spoke on campus at a Northwestern University College Republicans event. The Daily sent a reporter to cover that talk and another to cover the student protests uh, of his invitation to campus, along with a photographer. We recognize that we contributed to the harm students experienced, and we wanted to apologize for and address the mistakes that were made that night along with how we plan to move forward. One area of our reporting that harmed many students was our photo coverage of the event. Some protesters found photos posted to reporters' Twitter accounts re-traumatizing and invasive. I'm just going to say it. If you think that attending a public event at a college where a former cabinet member of an American uh, presidential administration is giving a speech. If you think that your appearance in the background at that event in a photo that the press has taken that's not singling you out is traumatizing, you're too childish to be in college. 
You should have to go out into the real world, get a job, do something with yourself, learn something about the world, and then maybe go back to college. But you're too immature to be a college student, to be a, a real college student. If that really re-traumatizes you, oh my gosh. More here. Quote, those photos have since been taken down. On one hand, as the paper of record for Northwestern, we want to ensure students, administrators, and alumni understand the gravity of the events that took place Tuesday night. However, we decided to prioritize the trust and safety what? of students who were photographed. We feel that covering traumatic events, first of all, they're describing Jeff Sessions giving a speech as a traumatic event, requires a different response than many other stories. While our goal is to document history and spread information, nothing is more important than ensuring that our fellow students feel safe and in situations like this, that they are benefiting from our coverage rather than being actively harmed by it. We failed to do that last week and we could not be more sorry. No, not accurate, not true. There are more important things than making sure that the snowflakes at Northwestern feel safe. There are more important things. Journalists should know that. The journalists should be presenting truth, should be presenting information and facts. But this is why journalism doesn't really exist. In fact, here's the problem. What they are describing is the reality of the state of modern journalism, which is that it is there to serve. It is a profession that has been hijacked, completely overtaken by liberal activists, and they think their real role is to pander to other liberals with their reporting. They will make good CNN reporters one day. They will make good MSNBC hosts one day. Pander to the left. That is what journalism is. Oh, we're all re-traumatized by Jeff. Jeff Sessions is like a super nice old man. Traumatized by him? I mean, I, you know, I wish I had the time. I've got to do this show. It would be so fun to just go to some of these campuses when they're going to give one of these speeches and just walk around. I know people have done this before, but I want to do it. Why does Jeff Sessions traumatize you? Well, because he's, you know, anti-minority and anti-LBGTQ. And how is he those things exactly? Well, I heard it from a bunch of other people and other people have said it. And so I'm saying it. Hmm. Interesting. More from this, uh, apo- this, this apology. We also wanted to explain our choice to remove the name of a protester initially quoted in our article on the protest. Any information the Daily provides about the protest can be used against the participating students. While some universities grant amnesty to student protesters, Northwestern does not. We did not want to play a role in any disciplinary action that could be taken by the university. Huh? They don't want to name. This is a student paper at a university. They don't want to name a protester who gave his name. In case the protester, like, decides to start breaking windows and throwing things at people and then maybe gets in trouble. This is the concession that the journos are willing to make. I mean, I understand that there's a lot, you know, there are people that are saying, oh, you know, you should mock and this is a college newspaper. No, these are adults. This is an esteemed institution. In fact, you know, if somebody in a few years were to say, oh, I graduated from Northwestern's journalism program, we're all supposed to say, ooh, that's amazing, even though who cares? Uh, but it is also telling you, it is showing you exactly where the root of the problem is here. People are learning in these programs at these schools that they are to be ideologues as journalists. This isn't something that occurs. This doesn't happen when they get out in the real world and they're exposed to more information about how journalists should do their jobs. No, they are 
taught this, literally taught this in school. This is part of the curriculum. You have to be a defender of the left if you're going to be a journalist. Otherwise, you know, you're an alt-right troll. You're a, you know, a white nationalist. You're, you know, all these things, all these smears that intellectually lazy leftists just level at people all the time. That's what, that's what it is. That's what you become to them. That's what they'll say. Uh, but I thought this this story at Northwestern was just just hilarious, re-traumatizing. Being in a photo in the background of a speech by a major political figure who's running for Senate, by the way, in Alabama, uh, is re-traumatizing. Um, I'm sorry, but I I can't uh, I can't accept that an adult would view it that way, and that this would happen. It happens at these at these very elite schools. It reminds me of when. There was that whole ruckus at Yale a few years ago over whether children should be judged by wokeness when they're wearing Halloween costumes. And that maybe there was a discussion we had about this. You had children shrieking, I'm sorry, adults acting like children, shrieking, screaming at professors over that at Yale. These institutions are, are increasingly unserious places. Very, very expensive babysitting programs for young adults. That's really what a lot of colleges turned into, including the best colleges, which is also why when people get so upset about Aunt Becky and the others involved in these college admission schemes, they at least understood one part of this whole game. It's just about getting into these places and then leveraging that credential and perhaps leveraging some of the network you have from the institution as effectively as you can. No one really goes to these places anymore and hasn't. Well, I shouldn't say no one. Fewer and fewer people go to these institutions. And the primary motivation for being there is really to learn new stuff that challenges them. Nope. Certainly not the case in Northwestern. But re-traumatized by being in the photo. I mean, the, the desire to, to take language and make it sound like ideas you don't like are the equivalent of violence. Or, you know, are the equivalent, like, like you're going to get PTSD from hearing from a politician from the opposing political party and therefore you have to shut it down because it's a dangerous and harmful thing to students. I mean, oof, wow, this is, this is where we are. But I suppose as long as the media pretends that this stuff is normal, it's not going to change anytime soon. Are Democrats too invested in their politicians? Do they take political support to a place of uh, internalizing and and make it as though it's intrinsic to their identity. Is this a, is this a thing that we should be worried about? And I've said for a long time, although, although people would challenge us in the Trump era, to be sure, but that Democrats uh, worship their leaders, Republicans elect them. I do think that there's a bit of a difference. We certainly saw that in the Obama era. I mean, he was elevated to uh, beyond mortal human status. I mean, Obama was a, a symbol from the beginning for people on the left, for Democrats, and for a lot of people around the world, that went far beyond what he actually was either able to accomplish or anything else. Uh, I do think that people still on the right uh, view Trump differently in that they don't worship him as a man, but they are very, very invested in the way that he approaches politics. Uh, that all said, here's AOC giving voice to this idea that politicians are more than just people that we elect to do a job. Play seven. 
When you elect a politician and then they let you down, it feels like rejection. It feels like heartbreak. It feels like betrayal. And it feels like I never want to love again. That's what that feels like. And so I understand how that feels because I felt that way. But you know what happens when you say I never want to love again? Your heart gets black and you turn angry and you get very anxious. I have never loved a politician one day in my life. I'm like, have I ever dated a politician? No, I've never loved a politician one day in my life. I think it's a bizarre way to talk about politicians. But I don't think it's even just rhetorical flourish from AOC. I think that a lot of Democrats really do have they, they have an emotional attachment to these political figures. I mean, that's why to this day I'm upset at myself because I was still in the shock of, oh, my gosh, Trump is winning. I was home uh, that night. I was doing radio. I was doing some radio stuff and I was doing hits for the blaze at the time. But I was home and the Hillary, the Hillary victory party that wasn't a victory uh, was was just maybe 15 blocks away from me. I mean, I could have gotten there. I still say wish I'd gone because it would have, I think, been a formative moment in my political understanding to see so many adults shattered and crying because Hillary Clinton, hello, Hillary Clinton wasn't going to be president of the United States. You know, not George Washington, not Abraham Lincoln, you know, not... <laughs> Uh, not Ronald Reagan. No, no. Hillary Clinton wasn't going to be president. And adults were crying. Oh, they're all in tears. It's horrible. I remember when Mitt Romney lost his second term to Obama. I didn't cry. When Obama won his first term, I didn't cry. I've never cried over a politician's victory or loss. And I would really question the judgment and I would question the uh, stability of any emotional stability of anybody who, who would. But, you know, AOC, the, the the emotional drive so much of left-wing thinking and left-wing ideology that it seems totally normal to say that it's a heartbreak when a politician doesn't do what you wanted that politician to do. I thought we were supposed to, you know, I've come from a different place on this. You know, I grew up being told largely by the adults around me, politicians lie, um, politicians are not to be trusted and to be held accountable and you know it's a trust but verify situation at best and that you know there's a lot to be uh, a lot left to be desired about the way most politicians in american life you know conduct themselves and whatever and maybe that's maybe that's too cynical but i would just say that um that's always been the way i've thought about this like don't don't put your hopes and dreams in a person put your hopes and dreams in the people around you that you love that you know put your hopes and dreams in america overall but don't think that there's any one person who is going to be the the difference maker the the make or break situation for america because you will be disappointed you will be disappointed if you do that i don't think you should be heartbroken because that's just weird um but the uh, elevation and I also think the Democrats are a little bit bummed out right now because these these this crop of politicians they currently have that they're putting forward. Um, nobody can really pretend that they're inspirational. I mean, n- nobody really thinks that there will be tears of joy if Joe Biden were to win, let's say, because Joe Biden's so great. There may be tears of joy from libs, but it's just because Trump won't be president anymore. Um, but I really wish we could go to we could become a country where. 
everyone just just tones it down a little, just just calms down a little bit over the political stuff and stops thinking that everything that happens is the most important thing ever in American politics. It's really not. You know, go watch a good Netflix show. Speaking of a good Netflix show, um, we have now, well, I guess it's just not Netflix, it's a competitor. Disney Plus is out. And and this then is, is exciting for me. I mean, I grew up watching Disney movies. Um, I, I remember them all very well. I, I loved this. I saw The Sword in the Stone so many times. Archimedes, who, what, what? Sword of the Stone was a fantastic movie. I want to get a dog just so I can name him Archimedes. What do you call him for short, though? Archie or Medes? You know, anyway. These are the important questions that keep me up late at night. Who, what, what? Um, oh, boy, boy, I see no boy. Um, that's when he's trying to find the Archimedes, the owl's trying to find the boy. I do sound just like Archimedes, and you know that. You do sound just like your Elizabeth Warren impression. Wow. Really? Yeah. You're going to do you're going to do me like that today? I am. That sounds different. Elizabeth Warren. I, it's is a here. slightly different, it's different, but it's pretty it's, much that's the unfair. same. I I'm throwing a flag on producer Mark's throwing a flag. Oh. Oh. Yeah, that's right. She's sad too. So, hold on a second. The best Wait, I asked you the best is I know the best Robin Hood I asked producer Mark last week was the animated Robin Hood, which was the correct answer, and I was pleased that we didn't have to code red producer Mark because he got that one right. What is the best Disney movie of all time? Like, are we talking animated or just Disney in general? Animated. Oh, no, animated. Okay. We're not. That's because the- best of all time is the Mighty Ducks trilogy. Mm. Uh, that's just, those will always be my favorite movies. Oh, okay. I've never even seen them. So oh, fuck. See, this is why you need Disney Plus so you can go watch Apparently, all three. That would give me the access. Yes, it would. But so um, the best animated. Animated. You can, only, you can only do one. It's a tough call between Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast for me. Hmm. Uh, you know, I'm going to go Little Mermaid. All right. Little yeah. Mermaid. Really? It's, uh, it's bold. What's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with it. It's bold. Hmm. All right. I would say for me, I think you have to go, I might. I mean, you know, I I loved I loved Aladdin at the time, but I, I think it's either Sword in the Stone or Lady in the Tramp for me. I mean, I love, but I saw those movies so many times growing up. But that what makes me think about that right now? Not only is Disney Plus now coming out with this, or is out, I think it, you know, with this streaming channel. Um, but what uh, is interesting to me is that they've had to do a fair amount of editing of the Disney movies because guess what? Not up to the standards of wokeness today, my friends. Uh, so they've edited out, for example, those of you that know Lady and the Tramp very well, which is a great movie. I, I, I think Sword in the Stone, Lady and the Tramp, I don't know. I mean, Beauty and the Beast is an amazing animated film. First animated movie to ever be nominated for Best Picture overall in the Oscars. Fun fact. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Aladdin, The Lion King, also fantastic movies. I'm probably leaving one or two out. Uh, that should be in that same category of of greatness, of, of awesomeness. But they had to cut some scenes from Lady and the Tramp. And there's one scene that they cut that I knew that they would cut, which is um, involves two Siamese cats. That's cut now. From, I remember seeing, I saw, I know the whole song they sing because I saw this so many times as a kid. I grew up with this movie. But they've cut that entirely from the, uh, the li- you know, this digital library now of online Disney classics. Um because, you know, now they're basically saying that these Disney, some of these Disney, parts of these Disney movies that were cartoons for kids were, are racist. Um, 
But there's one that I just, I'm, I'm a little surprised actually, and it's in Lady and the Tramp as well. Remember the scene, you've seen Lady and the Tramp, right? Of course. Remember when the tramp and lady are about to have the pasta dinner and it's like, this is the night. They it's cut that? The full night. They cut right before because the Italian guy goes, hey, Giuseppe, oh. get it a pizza or a brick of your face or whatever. And I'm like, really? We can't even do Italian accents anymore on TV? Is this really where I'm like, I'm, I'm throwing a flag on this too. What? I don't understand. It's too stereotypical? I don't understand. That's what they're saying. It's it's too stereotypical for Italians. In a movie about two dogs kissing. Yes. And it's two Italian guys who are like making the pasta. You can't say how break you face? It's ridiculous. I mean, I don't think it's an anti-violence thing. I think it's a you can't do the... Uh, what's next? You can't... I mean, what what accents are acceptable? I mean, this is what I would say. What accents are acceptable? Look, I understand there's some greater sensitivity when certain people make fun of certain... Italians like run the country. Italy's, you know, like so. What, what's the problem? I don't understand. Yeah, this it, makes no sense to me. It makes no sense to me. I mean, it's especially it's in a movie. Movies, I think, movies, TV shows should have ability to do whatever. Like, if you're there's a new Harriet Tubman movie out, can you not say the N word in that? Um. Well, no. I mean, it depends on who says. Exactly. But like, it's talking about history. Well, no. That, people, it, it, oh, I see. You're saying can that, the actors even say exactly? Are the actors not allowed to say I, it? Well, the actors can say in as that long context. As they're the bad, as long as it's clear that they're the bad guys, right? That's kind of the because. Uh, but no, but then you get in this interesting point where it's like, well, you know, what what are the rules? The rules are always changing. The uh, the lady in the tramp situation though was a surprise to me because that is in advance of even where I thought that is even more extreme on wokeness than I had anticipated that you yeah. can't say I break I break a you face you know? I, I don't understand how can I not can I not do an Irish accent on, on you can't do anymore? historical That's movies right. anymore because of historical context you can't, you can't do, do Scottish accents accent you can't. anymore hey, Scottish people we drink we've got kills you can't do no. any of this anymore you can't, can't do, do anything. anything you can't do anything no and this is this is what the, the left is like is like taking culture in America and just just drowning culture in the bathtub all the time and, you know, yeah, there's some stuff that's bad. There's some stuff that shouldn't be said. But, like, everything is now getting thrown into this. I mean, you can't even, the Italian guys and Lady in the Tramp. I'm offended by the beast now. I just decided. Yeah. As an ugly person, I'm offended by an ugly beast. I, I, I think that, uh, first of all, the beast was kind of handsome. You know what I mean? Yeah, after he transformed into the prince. <laughs> no, but I mean, I mean, he was like, he had like big lats, you know? I mean, he was like a- Were they lats? He was like, and you know, what is it, uh- He's an anthropomorphic animal or something. I mean, it looked kind of like it looked kind of like a dude with like way too much facial hair. What animal is he supposed to be? <laughs> I don't, it's not even clear. I don't is know. it like if you grew your hair out and like covered your face? Uh, yeah, I mean, something like that. Oh. Yeah, I, I kind of could look a little bit like like the beast from the movie. I think mm. I need though the big. He has like big, big horned teeth. I know horns on his head and big teeth. Yes. Anyway, I, we're just trying to. This is silly time, folks. Like now, e everything's getting cut. I'm wondering what else they're gonna find. That's you know, look, I, I get it. Siamese song, uh, Siamese cat's song is, you know, some stereotypes in there that are that are that are bothersome to people. I understand. I'm not saying nothing is allowed to be changed. I'm just saying, like, the Italian guy's a lady of the trip. Come on. We got nothing anymore. We got we can't do nothing is allowed to be fun. Nothing is allowed to be uh, you know, funny. You know, it's and it's not even just sensitive areas now. It's it's going to be everything soon. If they cut anything from the Mighty Ducks movies, I'm going to be angry. I mean, I, I've always said to people, think about the the comedies that we. I mean, first of all, I mean, I'm Robin Williams 
entire body of work is basically now it's going to get canceled. They're going to cancel all of it. George Carlin. George gone. Carlin. I mean, these guys, they're, they're the stuff that they talk, the stuff, it's all going to get canceled. Everything's going to get canceled. Nothing's allowed to just be in the context of the time and treat us like adults who can handle that. Maybe some things have changed, but we can still enjoy the piece of, of performance or art for, for what it is. Whew. Anyway. All right. Well, let's do roll call. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for Roll Call. All right, let's get to it. Um, we have first up, Tiff, and this is uh, facebook.com slash Buck Saxon. If you want to send email, teambuck at iheartmedia.com. Also, please, if you're listening to this on radio or on podcast, check out Pluto TV. Just download the Pluto TV app. Channel 248, the first is the name of the channel. I'm on it. My man Jesse Kelly is on it. And there'll be other folks joining this merry band of free speech advocates as well down the line. So please do check it out. It's fun to watch what's going on here in the Freedom Hub whenever you can. And with that, uh, we will get to, oh, and also, as I keep saying, because it really does matter, all I want for Christmas and my birthday, which some of you know are very close to each other, all I want for Christmas and my birthday this year is for every person in Team Buck to get one person who is new to join the Team Buck family by listening to the podcast. That's all I want for Christmas. And if you do that, you've given me my Christmas and birthday gift, which is coming up soon. Do you want to be looking around on Amazon? What does Buck have? I don't know. No, forget all that. Get one person, just one. Everybody, and if you can get 10, well, then you're a Freedom Hut superstar. Uh, Tiffany writes in, Buck, I just finished Friday's podcast on my way home from work. I save your podcast for my hour-long drive so I can stay awake and alert after four hours of barn management. All right, cool. Anyway, I said to tell you, I love that you're a contemporary Renaissance man. You covered everything from the ills of socialism to Sasquatch movies. I laughed so hard at your comment about wanting some Sasquatch backstory the people in the car next to me must have thought I was nuts. Thanks for keeping us all sane. Uh, shields high. Well, thank you, Tiffany. I'm glad. And um, yeah, that was, a, I guess you're listening to a slightly older show, but uh, you wrote in today. So thank you for your thoughts. Let's see here. Um, well, sorry, I was going to pull it out here. Ethan. Uh, hey, Buck. I'd like your thoughts on the University of Virginia canceling a 21 gun salute for Veterans Day. Due to students protesting against gun culture. Thanks. Love your show. Well, Ethan, I'm sure it's no surprise to you to hear me say that I think that it's absurd. I think that people need to uh, get a grip. I think that uh, we live in a world where firearms exist and the proper exposure to firearms, including in ceremonies, is something that uh, we should have. And it is a part of our culture. And uh, it just goes to show you, I mean, what's next? Uh, we can't have, you know, law enforcement can't carry guns because guns are scary. They look scary. Uh, a gun is a tool, just like a knife is a tool, just like a bat is a tool. Um, hold on a second. Uh, so I'm getting some random messages in here. To, sorry, there's a lot of like, hello, please invest in my company click this link or something it's like no not gonna click that link adam buck if we could only plant the idea that communism socialism isn't voldemort it comes as the pink lady dolores slowly ruining hogwarts with rule after rule till no one is happy except her 
Oh, I don't read Harry. I didn't read Harry Potter. So, did you read Harry Potter? Yes, Dolores Umbridge is the worst human being on the face of the planet. Really? Yeah. How have you never watched Harry Potter or read the books or anything? I don't know. I have like some weird cultural gaps. Yeah. Should I should I read the books? Oh I yes, like I just read reread them like as an adult. It's still good. It's still great. I yeah. loved it. Yes. Maybe I should just read all these Harry Potter. I books. really really enjoy. I think she's the first billionaire author, J.K. I believe Rowling, so. Yeah, so, which is obviously and the movies about. are great too, but the books are even better. All right, and we got we got a vote for me reading Harry Potter. Maybe I have to check this stuff out. We'll yeah. see. Sean writes, yo, Christian genius billionaire Buck Sexton. Why, thank you, sir. A bit behind on my podcast, so my guess is that the, of these three to be true that you're a billionaire, can I get a buck? Sean, fan from the real news days to present. Um, no, I mean, the only thing that is uh, is true about those things is that I am, I am a Christian, a baptized and confirmed Catholic. Um, I cannot claim to be a billionaire but i would tell you if i were a billionaire i would still do this show i would still do it so that that is how much i love the freedom hunt if i were a billionaire i would still show up and do this show i mean producer mark would be rolling in in like a maybach or actually if money was no object what would be the producer mark mobile if this was a billion dollar enterprise i don't really care about cars that much you're not a car you're not yeah. a car guy i'm not really a car guy either which but I, I would have a driver to drive me in rather than take public transportation that's what I'm talking about. I don't care what car they take me in. This is why whenever I go to, whenever I travel anywhere in the country now, I just Uber everywhere, which is great. I get to meet somebody, get to have like a new friend. Well, it depends on where you go. I don't want to have a car. I just want someone to. Well, it's no, but I mean, if, if public transportation yeah, yeah, is good in the yeah, city yeah, you're going to, that's true. Um, all right, here we go. Taylor writes, "Buck, it's a may." Uh, oh, add another point for Buck. Avengers are overrated. Boom. Add one on the board for the Buckster. Amazing. Congratulations. That's one. like three. We'll do one. We'll do one. He'll do one. Uh, Chris, Buck, love the show. I dig your hair and your stance on current issues and politics. That said, to be fully actualized, you need to rock any of the Chihuahua flavors. Huh? Oh, they are a fierce, handsome, and dedicated breed. The only reason canine or military dog handlers don't use them is that they can't handle them. Aside from that obvious fact, how cool would it be uh, for the headline to be that some terrorist guy was cornered and bested by a fierce chihuahua? Come on, man. Wake up and smell the Black Rifle coffee. I don't know about this whole chihuahua as working dog slash attack dog thing. Um, I, I think we might be might be a little bit of a stretch. Although I did love when I was in El Paso doing some reporting on the border, I don't know, about a year and change ago. Uh, or no, less than a year ago now. God, I haven't been in New York that long. But the uh, the Chihuahua, the, not, I was going to say Little League, what it, minor league franchise there, the mascot is like a fierce-looking Chihuahua, and they told me that it's the single best-selling of any minor league franchise gear. The Chihuahua is the best-selling because everyone just likes the Chihuahua logo so much. So, so there, you got that going for you, Chihuahua lovers. I think my friend Tommy Laren also has it. She's got a Chihuahua named Coda. So some people out there got, got chihuahuas. My older brother has a Pomeranian, which is like a chihuahua with a fur coat on. It's like a very, very, very smooth chihuahua. Or no, it's not smooth. He's got a fur coat on. It's a very uh, frou-frou chihuahua, maybe. Bob writes, Buck, sort of off topic, but just let you know shields are high. I had to replace a rabbit that I lost due to illness. Finally found a wonderful one. And his name is Langley, our little team Buck member. All right, Bob. Well, I hope I hope that you uh, your rabbit brings you much joy. 
Thank you so much for writing in. Appreciate it. Patrick Buck, as much as I wanted the, the Miami Vice remake to be a great movie, it wasn't. Likewise, Jack Ryan season two stinks. Great actors, but no no doubt. But the script was obviously hijacked by the Starbucks and Prius crowd. Shields high, brother. Sully. Uh, well, Sully, thank you so much for writing in. Yeah, I'm not even I'm not even going to get through the Jack Ryan season two, I think. I watched one episode of it, and I was like, this is garbage. I'll watch a little more just so I can make fun of it here on the show. But Valerie, best Robin Hood adaptation, Mel Brooks, Men in Tights. We're men. We're men in tights. We roam around the forest looking for fights. I remember that. I remember it was pretty, it was pretty good. And uh, yeah, I'll take it. Uh, that's going to be for the show today, folks. So you know what I want for Christmas this year? And Santa will tell you I have been, I have been nice. I have not been naughty. So tell somebody about the Bucks Action Show. If you have not already, please check us out on Pluto TV. It's fun for you to have the visual of the Freedom Hut here in New York City. And it's even more fun if we get more and more people to watch, to listen, to be a part of our merry band traveling the forest looking for fights with freedom. Shields high.